Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads this way. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author Erwin Lutzer uh, once wrote, God's call is by an inner conviction given by the Holy Spirit and confirmed by the Word of God and by the body of Christ. So I want to welcome you back to our series uh, on the church titled First Timothy, the Plan for Church and Life. And before we get started, I just want to take a moment and say thank you all for who were here last week, patiently listening as we walk through a very difficult passage of Scripture, which was First Timothy 2, 11 through 15, which, by the way, addresses a very hot-button issue in, in our culture with regard to women pastors. In fact, what you don't, I don't know if you realize it or not, but the, the Southern Baptist Convention begins its annual meeting today and will go for about three days, and this will be a very important but also potentially divisive topic in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, because there are many people who struggle to submit to what the, script, the Scriptures actually teach. Now, with that said, I, I appreciate your patience last week as we covered a lot of ground. Right? There was a lot to talk about, and I did not want to turn that into two sermons. I wanted to get it all done in one. Right? I didn't want to take two sermons to answer that difficult question. And secondly, I want to say thank you for the support and the feedback after that sermon. Again, I want you to realize my aim is to faithfully proclaim the truth and to do so with, with love. Right? And because of that. I spent a great deal of time preparing for that, that text and to preach that text. And, and again, I wanted to, to accurately handle the Word of God, but I also wanted to be gracious and fair in how I presented what the Word was teaching. And your feedback confirmed that uh, I had achieved my aim. And, and I want you to realize it's, it's an encouragement to me as a minister of the gospel, right? Uh, and so again, I want to say thank you. But with that, um, we are carefully walking through the first letter to Timothy as a church because we, like all churches, need to grow in our understanding of our faith and our understanding of our theology, including our theology of the church. We need to grow in our understanding of what the church is, what the church is for, and what, how the church is to act and to operate. And as, as, as we know from the Scriptures, the church doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And as such... The church is to be what God calls it to be, and it is to do what God calls it to do. And we then are to model our local church after not our feelings and not our culture and not the best business practices from the secular world. Right? We are to model our church family on the, the templates of the Scriptures. We're to build our church after the pattern that it's set forth by the Word of God. And 1 Timothy, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, have a great deal to teach us about how to build the local church and how we're to live and behave as a part of God's church. Now, 1 Timothy is a letter that was written by Paul, as you know, to a young pastor that he had left in Ephesus to bring reformation to that church there because the church, over time, had fallen into trouble. It had allowed uh, unqualified leaders to take leadership in the church, and the result was false teaching had entered the church, and what followed that was then behavioral issues inside the church. Um, 
which is exactly what we've seen so far in the letter. Paul tells Timothy from the very beginning, he commands him to put an end to the false teaching, to tell the false teachers to stop teaching. And then he tells Timothy to deal with the behavioral problems in the church that have popped up because of the false teaching. Issues like quarreling and arguing and infighting in the church. Prayer issues. Women dressing immodestly in the church and women attempting to exercise authority in the church that was not given to them by God. Timothy was to deal with these behavioral issues. And then Timothy was to then, after that, shore up the leaders in the church, which is what we're going to see in the text today. In fact, chapter 3, Paul is going to address the root of the root issue of building a healthy church. And he does so by giving Timothy clear qualifications for those who would lead or who would be the leaders of each local church. You see, in every church, you have many different ministries. In every, in, in every church, you have different departments, you have different kinds of leaders, many different people with different roles and different jobs. But from a biblical perspective, every person in the church will fit into two essential categories. There are two fundamental categories of people in the church. You have members of the church, and then you have officers of the church. You have members of the church, which all of us that are members fall into. Then you have the officers of the church, which are the biblical leaders of the church. As the second uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith states, a local church gathered and fully organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. Right? And officers appointed by Christ are overseers or elders and deacons, which, by the way, is exactly what we're going to see in the text here um, as we read and go through chapter 3. There are basically two biblical offices of church leadership in every church. You have overseers, those who oversee and supervise the church and its operations, which is the text that we will address today. And then you have deacons who are those who assist or who help those who oversee the church, which is what we'll address in the next section that we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Because next week, we're going to have family day, and we're going to review uh, the gospel and go through all the things that the kids have learned from BBS this week. And so the officers of the church are overseers, the supervisors, and, the de- and then there are deacons who are the helpers. And an easy way to kind of remember the difference between the officers in the church is overseers or elders are are theological leaders of the church. They lead theologically. And then the deacons of the church are practical leaders in the church. They lead in practical ways. Overseers meet the theological and the spiritual needs of the church, and then deacons meet the practical and the physical needs of the church. Now understand, there are many other ways for us to serve and to lead in the church. And there are many other ministries. There's lots of different kinds of ministries. You have children's ministry, you have evangelism ministry, you have food ministry, you have cleaning ministry, you have construction ministry, you have you know, recovery ministry. There's all kinds of ministries. But all those other ministries and all those other roles in the church fall under the overall responsibility of the overseers of the church. Now, let's be very clear. Christ is the head of the church. In all of us, our allegiance is primarily first to Him. Right? And His Word is His authoritative direction for the church, and all of us, individually and corporately, are subject to it. But, but God, in His wisdom, invested leadership authority in overseers, or the elders of the church, and those overseers are aided by the, the deacons of the church. Now, what this also means for us is from a biblical perspective, there are no other biblical officers in the church. There are no official prophets of the church, as some groups might claim. There are some groups that will say that the church needs an actual prophet. The Bible makes, does, not, does not spell that out. That is not there in the text. Right? No one can, can actually bear the name of church prophet. Right? And there is also no official apostles in the sense of the big A apostles like John and Peter and, uh, and Paul. And even there are those people who are evangelists and, and have evangelism ministries, right? which is a real thing, but there are no official church evangelists. There's not an evangelist of a church. In fact, 
all Christians to some degree are evangelists. Now, some people are just more gifted in that, and they've built a ministry out of that, but there's not a, an office of evangelist in the church. Suffice it to say, there are no other biblical offices that the Bible prescribes for the church, which also means, then, there are no offices or organizations outside of the local church that exercise direct authority over the members of the church and the leaders of the local church. I want to be really, really clear about that. There is no governing hierarchy like we see in the Roman Catholic Church. There's not a group of people outside who do not live here that get to say exactly what we do here. It's the same with the Episcopal Church. In fact, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, again, is very helpful here. It says in uh, uh, chapter 26, paragraph 4, the Lord Jesus is the head of the church. By the Father's appointment, all authority is conferred on Him in a supreme and sovereign manner to call, institute, order, and govern the church. And it says the Pope of Roman Catholicism cannot in any sense be the head of the church. As Baptists, we affirm that all churches are autonomous and under the direct leadership of Christ without some superficial or artificial hierarchy outside the church. In fact, the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, which is our standard statement of faith, uh, articulates this quite well. It says, The New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous, meaning self-ruling, local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ, governed by His law, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by the Word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the Lordship of Christ. He is our head. And in such congregations, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its scriptural officers are pastors or overseers and deacons. And so the church, then we can just suffice it to say and settle all the arguments and say that the church is made up of members and officers, and the officers of each church must, the officers that each church must have in order to be a biblical church must be overseers or, again, elders and deacons. Now, in this part, of, in, in the next part of the text, verses 8 through 13, which we'll, again, cover in two weeks, we're going to jump in and we're going to talk about the office of deacon. There's a lot really to talk about there and what that means. But in the text that we have before us today, we're going to deal with the, the office of overseers. Well, what is an overseer and his qualifications? Paul says it is that the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Which I guess then leads to the very first question, what in the world actually is an overseer? Um, an overseer, that word is just not something we would use quite often. The word actually that, that's used here is the Greek word episcopes. And it's from that word that we actually get another word, you know, episcopal. Some of you probably have heard of the Episcopal Church before. Well, this word, episcopes, is oftentimes translated by some as bishop, as, as if it's some extra special title. It's really not, right? But really, the root meaning of the word episcopes just simply is oversight. It means to oversee something. It means to be a supervisor in a sense. That's, and so overseer is an, appropriate, is an appropriate translation. But what we need to realize is Paul uses this word, episcopes, interchangeably with another Greek word, which is presbyteros. Presbyteros. And, and it is from that word we get the English word Presbyterian. You see how suddenly these names of churches are starting to pop out of the Greek language? Yeah. That's where we get Presbyterian from. But the word typically gets translated into English as elder. In fact, Paul writes to, to Titus, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders or presbyteros in every town as I have directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and are not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, he automatically interchanges the word episcopes, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Just in that one text, Paul uses these two words interchangeably to refer to the exact same office. And so an overseer is simply an elder in the church. 
Okay? Again, overseer seems like a strange way to refer to a church leader. In fact, I don't, I've never even heard anybody say, what do you do? Well, well I'm, an, I'm the head overseer of the church. Seems kind of actually way too elevated, doesn't it? I'm the, over, I'm the head over, I'm the worship overseer of the church. I'm the, I'm the youth overseer of the church. Oh, mean you, you mean you're a babysitter? No, that's not what that means. No. Right? Elder, I think, probably is a better way uh, to refer to that. So, but they, they use these words interchangeably. But there is one more word that's referred to this office, I think they were a bit more familiar with. In fact, we find the roots of this word in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul calls these elders shepherds. He calls them shepherds and teachers. Now, the Greek word shepherd is poimenos. That's what, that's what the Greek word is, poimenos. But when you translate that into Latin, we get the word pastor. That's the word we're familiar with. This is the word that we kind of understand now, right? An overseer, then, can be referred to as an elder or a pastor in the church. And I want you to realize all three of those words mean the exact same office. It's the same exact thing. So if you said, hey, you're an elder, great. Call me an elder. That's fine. Right? Or pastor. Don't call me overseer, though. That just almost feels like overlord, and that's just not good. That might even go right to my head. So. But pastor, overseer, and elder, right, are basically the same, the same idea. In fact, we see all three of those words connected in, in one section of Scripture. First uh, Peter chapter 5, we'll see all three of the ideas come together. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Peter says, So I exhort the elders, the presbyteros among you, as fellow elders and as witnesses of the suffering of Christ as well as partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, right, pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, episcopuentes, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So we see all three titles and labels all referring to the same group of people, the, the leaders, the overseers of the church. And so what we see in the scripture is overseer, is elder, is pastor, right? And it even, you can say bishop, again, but I think that that term has been given way too much lofty credit, so we kind of avoid that one. But it doesn't matter what a person calls himself or what, 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 what word we like to use over another, they refer to the exact same office. And so when you see that in the Scriptures, just understand Paul is talking about the exact same position in the church, which then leads to the second question. Now that we know what an overseer is, what is the function, then, of an overseer? What does an overseer do in the church? Well, Timothy, I mean, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, he writes this. He says, let the elders who rule well, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. We see in there two things, ruling and teaching. Peter also says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. In Titus, we are told that overseers are to steward, or be God's steward to oversee, and they must also be able to give instruction, which is to teach. So what we find in the, in the scriptures is that overseers and elders and pastors, their primary function is two things. They are, number one, ruling over the church under the authority of Christ and teaching the Word of God. That's the two primary functions of an elder or a pastor. They are to rule and to teach. Pastors and elders are commissioned by God to exercise oversight and supervision over the entire church. That means the church corporately, but that also means the members of the church individually. In fact, the Word of God reminds the members of the church that they are not autonomous members of some benevolent club. Right? That they are members of the body of Christ, and as such, they are to be submitted to Christ and under the oversight of the pastors and elders that have been appointed over them. As Paul says in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning of verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. And then drop down to verse 17, he adds, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your soul as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, 
for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, in this individualistic culture like we live in today, many people who call themselves Christians struggle with the idea that pastors and elders of the church might have some kind of authority over them in their lives. Just be honest. It's the way it is. I mean, we're Americans. I do what I want to do, when I want to do, how I want to do it, with who I want to do it. And ain't nobody telling me what to do. I mean, let's just be honest. That's just our attitude. That's how we are. Right? I want you to, and I want you to realize, I mean, I've, that's, that's my DNA right there. Right? You ain't the boss of me. Right? The idea of having to obey and submit to, to God-given authority granted to a pastor does not sit well with many people in our culture. In fact, that's why so many churches today don't practice church discipline. They don't practice the first commandment that Christ gave the church. You realize that. The very first thing that Christ, instruction that Christ gave to the church itself was, was church discipline. They don't deal with sin in the body. They don't confront false teaching. They don't confront people living in unrepentant sin. And the reason is because they are afraid that they're going to offend someone. And if they offend someone, they might not come back. And if they don't come back, then the numbers will drop. And then if the numbers drop, then the, then the revenue is going to decrease. And then how are we going to pay the mortgage? People don't like the idea of authority and submission to that authority. This also is why in the 20th century, there was a move away from corporate church life to the overemphasis of the priesthood of the believer. I mean, you've heard people say, why do I need to go to church? I don't need a pastor to tell me what to do. I'm already a priest. I'm already part of the priesthood. I'm part of the royal priesthood. I'm a, I'm a nation and a kingdom of priests. So why would I need church? Why do I need a pastor? Well, for, for three reasons. Number one, there is no office of priest in the church. It doesn't exist. The official office, the official office that functioned in the actual Religious life ended when Christ, our high king and high priest, made atonement for our sins once and for all. There was no more sacrifices to be made. No one had to slaughter any more lambs. No one had to come and give incense on the altar of incense. Number two, priests today, as we are a nation of priests, we make intercession on behalf of other priests. People. In fact, that's what priests did before. That's what their job was, to make intercession on the behalf of others. So our role as a kingdom of priests is to come before the throne of grace and intercede for other people. How? Through prayer. That's how we exercise that priestly authority. This is how we exercise our priestly duty, is we intercede for those people before God through our prayers. Number three, being a priest doesn't make a person a shepherd or an elder. You may be part of a royal priesthood, but you still need spiritual care. You still need shepherding. You still need instruction and discipleship. You still need to sit under the authoritative preaching of the Word of God. You still need a pastor and an elder. Pastors and elders are to exercise oversight over the church corporately, but also individually. They are to shepherd and to guide the flock. And here's the thing. The way they do this is not by giving orders or directives. The way they do this is through the, through the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. That is the primary way that overseers or pastors or elders oversee the church. It is through the ministry of the Word of God. That is why we say pastors and elders exercise theological leadership. They are to lead the congregation through careful exposition and preaching and teaching of the Word of God. In fact, the only authority, I want you to hear me on this, the only authority that a pastor has in your life is to proclaim to you the Word of God and what it says. That's the limits of a pastor's authority in your life. Pastors don't have the authority to tell you what to do and how you live your life. Right? That's not the authority granted to them. They don't have that authority. The only authority they have is to proclaim the Scriptures. They have the authority to proclaim to you the Word of God and then call you to obedience to that Word. 
And if you're in sin, they have the authority to proclaim the truth of Scripture about your sin and call you to repent and believe the gospel. That is where their authority comes from. Elders and pastors shepherd God's sheep by ministering to them the truth of the Scripture. That's why pastors and elders must be afforded then the time to study the Scriptures and pray for the congregation. This also, by the way, is why the office of the deacon was invented in the book of Acts. The physical needs of the church had grown to a crisis point that threatened the time that the apostles and elders needed to minister the Word of God. And so what they did was appointed deacons to handle the practical needs of the church. By the way, we'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. But suffice it to say, overseers serve the church through, through oversight or ruling and teaching. And by the way, in every church in the New Testament, we always find multiple elders and pastors and overseers. Never just one. As we talked about before, the biblical model for leadership is not one pastor and a deacon board. That's just not a biblical model for, 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 for leading the church. One pastor and a congregation is not a biblically sound church government. The biblical model for church is plural elders or multiple elders. Multiple qualified men working together to lead the congregation. And as you know, we as a church have been laying the foundation to adopt that model of the church as we, as we grow. Because I firmly believe that it is best for the church not to have one pastor who can get sideways by himself, but to have multiple elders who are theologically trained and they are working together, helping each other to keep their eyes set on Christ, leading together the body of Christ. So now we know what an overseer is and what he does. The next question follows is, who can be an overseer? Well, let's look at the text again. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, what is, now it's easy to overlook, but I want, you to, I want you to notice the verbs that Paul uses here. He uses the verb aspire, which means to actually literally reach out for, and he uses the verb desire, which means to set your heart on. The idea that Paul is getting at is if a person is an overseer, he ought to have a God-given desire to the office. Right? It shouldn't be, eh, I think it should be a pastor. No, it should be a God-given desire. It ought to be something that his heart is truly set on. It's something he ought to feel a deep yearning for, a yearning, right, that comes from God, that cannot be extinguished. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the famous, the famous uh, English preacher once said, it was Mr. Spurgeon, I believe, who used to say to young men, if you can do anything else, do it. If you can stay out of the ministry, stay out of the ministry. I would certainly say that without any hesitation whatsoever. I would say that the only man who is called to preach is the man who cannot do anything else. In that sense, he is not satisfied with anything else. This call to preach is, is put upon him, and such pressure comes to bear upon him that he says, I can do nothing else. I must preach. Anyone who is to be an elder or pastor or an overseer ought to have a God-given desire that drives them, that compels them to do it. That's the first requirement. A person must have a God-given desire to this noble task. By the way, it's the toughest job in the world, just to be honest. And understand, that's not the only requirement. Because simply having a desire isn't enough. Someone having a deep desire is not enough for a person to actually be ordained as an overseer. A feeling is not enough. Even feeling like God personally had called you is not enough to become an elder or a pastor. They must also have their, their call confirmed by the church. No one, and I mean no one, is allowed by the Scriptures to be self-appointed as a pastor. No one is allowed to be self-ordained. The church must recognize the call on a person's life and support that person and help them to become an elder. In fact, again, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith has something to say about this. Again, chapter 26, uh, in uh, paragraph 9, it says, 
Christ has appointed the way to call someone prepared and gifted by the Holy Spirit to, to the office of overseer or elder in the church. He must be chosen by the collective vote of the church itself. He must be solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer. And the body of elders of the church must lay hands on him if there are any already in place. It is the local church is the one who confirms a person's call. The church is the only God-ordained instrument for confirming and for developing and ordaining elders and pastors, period. Only the local church has that right. Bible colleges are useful and very important. Seminaries are a gift from God. In fact, right now, I'm continuing my education, working on my master's degree um, through Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary because I think it's important that I continue to grow. I believe I owe it to you that I continue to grow in my theological education. But Bible colleges and seminaries do not have the authority to ordain elders or pastors. Only the local church does. And even more specifically, online organizations, I don't care what anybody says, online organizations don't have the authority to ordain elders or pastors. That might work for the government so that you can go and perform marriages, but it doesn't work for the church. That little certificate you get from, you know, ordainme.com doesn't mean anything. And even more to the point, no person under any circumstance is allowed to ordain themselves. In fact, the greatest heresies in the American church today have come from self-appointed, self-called, self-ordained leaders. Let me give you just a few. Joseph Smith. He was self-appointed prophet and minister, founder of the LDS Church. Charles Taze Russell, self-appointed pastor and theologian. Ellen G. White, Seventh-day Adventists. Mary Baker Eddy, Church of Christ Scientists. How about this one? L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, they call it a church. Jim Jones of Jonestown. What do they all have in common? Self-appointed, self-ordained religious leaders. And the result, they have led many people to, to destruction. The only instrument in the world for ordaining elders and pastors is the local church. And so a person must have a God-given desire, and that desire must be confirmed by the church. And that person also must meet the biblical qualifications. Because there are biblical qualifications. Which leads us to the next question, what are they? Well, Paul gives us those in the next few verses. Paul, notice Paul says, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, not given... Oh, excuse me. Now, given what Paul says here, and the gender-specific language he uses, and given what we spent an hour and 15 minutes talking about last week, the first prerequisite of being an overseer or an elder in the church is to be a man. Only men are allowed to be ordained as elders or pastors in the church. And again, this isn't Sherman saying this. This is what Paul says. This is what the Word of God says. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. And the clear message of the Scripture is that only men are ordained to be elders and pastors. And if you have any questions about that, or if you missed last week's message, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that message. It's already uploaded on YouTube. And, 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 and if you want more information, I'd be happy to give you, send you and email you all my sermon notes, right? so you can walk through all the details that I have. Right? I've, and, and, and also, just remember, Carson always tells me how long I go. An hour and 14 minutes unpacking that text last week. And we went through it verse by verse in context. And the truth is God created men and women especially, I mean, men and women equally, right? Men and women are equal in the eyes of God, but they were created for different roles. And the role of pastor and elder is the role reserved for men. Why? I'm not God. I don't know. That's the first qualification. The second one, the second qualification has to do with his character. Look at verse 2, it says, Therefore an overseer must be a above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. 
What we see in this verse is a list of attributes that paint a picture of someone who has a moral character. What in the world? That is really weird. A video just started in my pocket. Man, it's going to be like a month or two before I can tell everybody to turn their phones down now. <laughs> wow. So the second qualification has to do with character. Um, what we see here in these verses is a list of attributes that paint a picture of someone of moral character. Because that's what's required of an elder. He must be a man of moral character. Notice it says that he must be above reproach. Now, the Greek word here means not caught in doing wrongdoing. Right? It's, it's the idea of somebody who's not you know, a lawbreaker. If someone's going to lead God's family, obviously, he shouldn't be engaged in wrongdoing. He shouldn't be someone who's robbing from banks. He shouldn't be someone who's you know, um, driving drunk. He, sh you know, he should not be doing things like that. Understand, this is not moral perfection that he's talking about, but really what we're talking, what he's what he's doing talking about is really someone who's not actively engaging in breaking God's law or the or or the or the, the law of man that doesn't conflict with God's law. Right? If a person claims to be a pastor, but he just refuses to file his taxes, right, and gets himself in, into all kinds of trouble, then that man's obviously disqualified from the ministry. So he must be above reproach. But then he says, husband of one wife. And I'm going to tell you, if there's any of these qualifications that, that there has been a waste of ink on, it is that one right there. There are many opinions about this particular text. Some will say that this is a prohibition against just simply being a polygamist. Others will say that this is a prohibition against a man who was once divorced ever becoming an elder. Some will say this text means that a person, you know, has to be married in order to be a pastor because if he's not married, then he can't be a husband of one wife. Therefore, he can't be an elder. Right? So being single then disqualifies him. Now, I don't have time to dissect all of those perspectives for you. And as I proved again last week, I have already a tendency to go long anyway. Let me just get the bottom line for you here. When Paul says husband of one wife, what Paul is talking about is simply this, marital faithfulness. Paul is talking about someone who is faithful to his wife. This is not about divorce in the past, especially if someone who was divorced in the past before they even became a Christian. The Apostle Paul was, was brutal and violent and led to the death of Christians, but yet he was one of the most influential Christian leaders in the world. Right? It also doesn't, have, doesn't particularly address polygamy. Polygamy is already prohibited, but it doesn't really address polygamy because it wasn't really practiced in the Greco-Roman world at that time. Right? But what was rampant in that culture is what was rampant in our culture today, adultery and infidelity. Right? And what Paul is saying here is a man must be faithful to his wife. He must not be someone who has concubines. He must not be somebody who has mistresses. He must be someone who's not committing adultery against his wife. That's the underlying truth. Right? And, and the point is that if a man cannot be faithful to his wife that he has committed himself to, how can he be faithful to God's church? That's the issue. Not to mention, being in leadership creates by its very nature, creates temptations and opportunities to fall into egregious sin. For pastors, just look around. What's happened in the world around us? How many men have we heard about disqualifying themselves from ministry because they had inappropriate relationships with their secretary or they were counseling somebody they shouldn't have been counseling and it turned into something? And right? It is rampant in the church today. In fact, this is such a serious issue that Billy Graham took steps to never be alone with another woman other than his wife. He just made it up. That was just his rule. He just would not do it. He wouldn't have lunch with a woman by himself. He wouldn't close the door in his office with a woman by himself. Right? And, and he prayed. I, I, I remember hearing him say this. He prayed that if it were possible, that if there was a chance that he could fall into that temptation and impugn the name of Christ, he begged God, kill me before it happens. Take me out of this world before it happens. Marital faithfulness is an essential quality of all elders and pastors. 
They must, without question, possess that. But what if the person's not married? How does it apply to them? Right? The issue isn't being married. The issue is faithfulness. If a man's not married, he needs to be faithful to his future wife. But more importantly, he needs to be faithful to God by being celibate. That means no premarital sex. That means no inappropriate relationships, even if it's you know, flirty, flirty. Right? And that certainly means you know, an abstinence from pornography. It's about faithfulness and sexual purity. Next, Paul says an elder must be sober-minded, which literally means someone who is not intoxicated. And this would include all intoxicants that alter a person's mind. Alcohol, drugs, natural, and synthetic. Right? They're, they're to be sober-minded. They're not to be drunk or intoxicated. Next, is he must be self-controlled, or literally someone of sound mind. And the idea here is an elder is someone who is, who is in control of his emotions. Now, it's not to say that they have to be emotionless, because I'm going to tell you, if you want a job that plays on your emotions, this is the one that will do it, right? But rather, the idea is that pastors and elders are not to be ruled by their emotions. Well, they feel them. They're able to feel deep emotions, but they then take those emotions and submit themselves under the authority of Christ and the Word of God. Their emotions say, I feel this, but this is what the Word says. Their emotions say, I don't like that doctrine, but this is what the Word says. This is why submission to the Word of God is such an important thing. They must be self-controlled emotionally. Then Paul says they must be respectable. The word actually means modest or well-ordered. And the idea, this is actually particularly relevant today, given the fact that there are wealthy megachurch pastors who live in lavish mansion compounds and who have private jets and expensive exotic sports cars and stay in 10,000 a night hotels. Elders and pastors are simply not to live that way. Right? Why? Because it distracts from the gospel immediately. And it, I think it discredits the church. Now understand, it's not that pastors shouldn't have a nice, modest home and reliable transportation and decent clothes and be able to go on vacation once in a while. But pastors ought not to live lavish, wealthy lifestyles. One of my favorite cars on the road. I used to, by the way, before, at a 2006 Dodge Charger Daytona, back when I made a lot of money and I wasn't a pastor. But one of the cars I love today is the, uh, um, the Dodge Challenger, the, the, this, this, the sporty edition with a big V8 that you know, is like 800 horsepower. Guess what? Even if I had the money in the bank and could afford the payments, I wouldn't get that car. You know why? Because people then who don't really know me would, would look at that and they would immediately then judge me and my walk with Christ based on that. And I don't want to be a stumbling block for them. Right. It takes the focus off the gospel and it discredits the church. Right. In fact, uh, John Piper says that pastors ought to live a, a wartime lifestyle. Right. And, and he used the analogy of, of, the, of um, what's the name of that, that ship in uh, Long Beach that everybody goes to? The Queen Mary, yeah. He used the analogy of the Queen Mary. He said, actually, when you go in there, it's, it's set up in two different ways. You have the, the way that it normally is for passengers, and it's very opulent and pretty and all this other stuff. And then you know, on the other side, you have it set up for, for wartime. And what happens is both sides of the ship serve the same function. Right? They get somebody from place point A to point B. They feed people. They get people places to sleep. One is, you know, meets the needs. The other one is very opulent. And what John Piper says is we ought as pastors to live a wartime lifestyle. We ought to certainly have the things we need to live, and we, certain, we shouldn't be, have undue, undue needs placed upon us, but we sh certainly shouldn't be living in opulence and cause distraction to the, to, the word of, uh, to the cause of Christ. Elders, likewise, are also to be hospitable, or literally someone who loves strangers, loves other people. Now, the reason for that is obvious, right? I mean, they are to be able to welcome others and help them to feel loved and integrate them in the body of Christ. And I'll tell you one thing. If there's one characteristic about this church family right here that I absolutely love is just that, that we have a loving, welcoming church family. 
And then it says they are not to be drunkards, or literally not given to wine is what, what it means. And what we need to realize is this is a prohibition against excess and against addiction. This is not a prohibition against alcohol or wine altogether. Right? I want to make that really clear because this is a point, I think, that many Christians in America, America especially, um, get really legalistic about, and they create a man-made rule for people and the church and for ministers that really is, doesn't have a biblical basis. There is no prohibition in the Bible for the consumption of, of alcohol, particularly wine. The prohibition always is intoxication or drunkenness. In fact, the first miracle that Jesus did was turn water into wine. And I heard somebody, a preacher, say, well, what Jesus did, he bypassed the photosynthesis and he just made grape juice. That is, you can't get that out of the text. That's the problem. You're adding something to the text. It's not there, right? It was not unfermented grape juice, but it was wine. In fact, if you read a little bit further, the guy at the, the, the party said, hey, they saved the best wine for last, which means usually people can't tell the difference by that time in the party, right? The Bible does not prohibit the consumption of alcohol, prohibits drunkenness. In fact, again, for centuries, every time the church held the Lord's table, from the very beginning of the first Lord's table, what was served was wine, not grape juice. In fact, it wasn't even until 1869, the 19th century, when Dr. Thomas Welch, Welch's grape juice, invented the process of making and keeping unfermented grape juice that some churches begin to use grape juice instead of wine. So I want you to realize, and I'm not saying we're changing, what I'm saying to you is that churches all the way back in history from the very beginning have always used wine. And Paul tells Timothy himself to drink a little wine instead of so much water. So understand the prohibition is not against consuming alcohol, it's against drunkenness and addiction. And they would say that for obvious reasons, because drunkenness is a loss of control, and addiction is a vice that can ruin a person's life, not to mention their ministry. Elders also to be not violent, literally not brawlers, but gentle. Now, I think this is probably the Captain Obvious one, right? The idea here is pastors ought not to be quick to use their fists to settle disputes. They ought to be Christ-like in sharing the, the truth in love and being long-suffering, and patient, and non-violent, and doing everything he can do to, to avoid physical conflict. Right? If, now, it's not to say that things don't warrant where, where pastors have to do something. In fact, uh, Pastor Francis Chan one time um, witnessed a, um, uh, a domestic violence situation where the husband was beating up uh, his wife, and he went to confront him to put a stop to it, and the guy turned on him and went after him, and without thinking, he just swung on him, and Pastor Francis Chan knocked the dude out, you know what I mean? Like, suddenly he became famous for that. He felt bad, but, but he also believed it was warranted. So this is not a prohibition against defending yourself, but it certainly is a prohibition against aggressive physical behavior. And then we're not also to be, you know, quarrelsome. Now, this doesn't mean elders can't engage in debate, right? Again, this sometimes gets overplayed. Well, you shouldn't really be arguing. You should be much nicer. There is no 11th commandment, by the way, that says thou shalt be nice. It doesn't exist, okay? Right. It just means that we're not to just go seeking to argue for argument's sake. We're not here to pick on people and to make people look stupid. The, the purpose of all of our discussions ought to be to, to lead someone to faith and repentance, not to just obliterate them. We should engage in debate. We should point out errors in false teaching. But we shouldn't have endless, fruitless arguments. And then it says, not a lover of money. And the idea here is that a, that a pastor should not be greedy and should not be motivated by financial gain, right? They're to do what they're doing because God called them to it, not because there's a lot of money in it, right? In fact, it was funny when, when Sherman was uh, in basic training, somebody asked, what's your dad do? He goes, oh, he's a pastor. And he goes, oh, that means he must, you guys must be rich. And he goes, not that kind of pastor. <laughs> now, again, this doesn't mean that pastors ought to live destitute financial lives and be paupers. Right? In fact, you know, this attitude has led many in the church to use, use this as an excuse to underpay pastors and elders. But again, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 10 of, 
I mean, chapter 26 of verse, I mean, in, in um, paragraph 10 says this, the work of pastors is to give constant attention to the service of Christ in his church and in the ministry of the word, uh, of the word in prayer. They are to watch over the souls of the church members as those who must give an account to Christ. The church to whom they minister must not only give them all due respect, but also must share with them from all their good things according to their ability. They must do so, do this so their pastors may have a comfortable living without having to in, be entangled in secular matters and so they can show hospitality to others. This is required by the law of nature and by the explicit command of our Lord Jesus who has ordained that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. So elders are not to do what they do for financial gain, but they ought to be able to make a living ministering the word. Now, when you look at these qualifications here that Paul lays out here, if you realize this is actually a super, this is kind of a superficial list of qualifications. This isn't a list of superstar qualifications. Notice it doesn't say he needs to be able to pray for 18 hours a day. He, didn't, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that you need, he needs to be able to hear audibly God's voice directly. It doesn't even say that he needs to perform any kind of miracles. Actually, these qualifications that he gives for the elders of the church are actually quite generic. In fact, these moral characteristics are the characteristics that all Christians should be aspiring to. Everyone as a Christian should be above reproach, and they should certainly be faithful in their marriage relationships, and they certainly should live to be respectable and not be greedy. You see, the reason why these are the qualifications for elders is because they are to be living examples of the Christian life. Their walk needs to match their talk. Their lives ought to resemble the words that they preach, leading their congregation by example. Now again, this is not about perfection, right? But it's about a consistent witness of someone living in obedience to the Word of God. Even when they fall down, you will see repentance and immediately getting back up. And so elders and overseers must be male, exhibit moral character in their lives. But there is still a few more things. Verse 4 says, He must be, manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? You see, the next qualification for elders and pastors is proven leadership. An overseer, if he is to lead God's flock, must prove that he actually has the ability to lead. And a perfect litmus test for a man's leadership is not how well he does at a job selling cars. A perfect test of his leadership is not how he manages a corporation because he can be a complete jerk and be successful there. Right? A perfect example of a man's leadership is how does he lead in his home? Does he manage his household well? Is he discipling his wife and his children? Is he teaching them? right? The Word of God. Is he, is he an example to them before the Lord? Is he loving his wife as Christ loves the church? Is he encouraging his children and not being you know, a dictator over them? Is he a man who leads first in love, or is he just a big jerk that yells and screams all the time? How a man leads his own family will help the church to see how he will lead God's family. But again, I want to hear me. It's not about perfection. It's not about your kids being perfect. It's about demonstrating character and leadership. It's about helping his family navigate the difficulties and the temptations of the world around them. It's, about having, it's not about having a perfect trophy wife who does everything perfectly and has the house clean all the time and never ever has a negative word to say it to anyone. It's not about having perfectly behaved kids that never ever make mistakes. In fact, I think the overemphasis on perfection here has created in our culture an unhealthy expectation of pastors. You just ask any pastor's kid. There's been an unhealthy expectation of pastors and pastors' wives and their children, which has led to pastors creating this perfect little image on the outside of what their family looks like. But when, you, when they get home and close the doors, it's hell. That's why so many pastor's kids, as soon as they're old enough, they're out of there and out from underneath the church, uh, they leave the church. Paul's directive is about lovingly leading. Right? It's about the loving quality of a man's leadership 
as he himself seeks to be Christ-like and submit himself unto Christ. And so he must be a man, have moral character, proven leadership ability. And then Paul says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Paul's point in making that he's making here is an elder must be spiritually mature. Now, I think this should go without saying, but it seems sometimes to get lost on people around us. In fact, let me give you an example. A person comes to Christ and experiences a radical life change and really experiences the power of God. And they become excited about it. And then what do they do? They become vocal about it. And they want to tell everybody in the world about it. And by the, by the way, that's good. New believers bring a new kind of energy to evangelism that is absolutely wonderful and awesome. But the problem is, is so many churches and, and church members are so immature themselves, they don't realize that they need to help them to, to get plugged into the church and to become discipled and become trained theologically. A person can get saved and proclaim the gospel, but have a lot of theological things in their head screwed up. And because of their enthusiasm and because of their positive feedback and because they are not trained, they begin to believe that they are equipped not to just share the gospel and their story, but to actually then answer theological questions that they don't have any business answering. And they believe that they can actually lead other people in ways that they're not equipped to lead. And with the best of intentions, they can end up getting over their head and leading people astray. A lot of church movements start that way. Somebody gets excited, starts their own home church because they don't want to listen to some pastor, and then bam, they end up creating a group that really gets sideways. Just because a person has a passion for the Word of God and is excited about their faith doesn't mean they're equipped to preach and teach. Spiritual maturity is such an important, it's an important attribute of all believers, but it's especially an important attribute of those who would be overseers and elders, right? And what that means is they must be then discipled. They must have been discipled, and they must be trained. Right? They, they need to know how the church works. They need to know what their responsibilities are. And they also must be doctrinally sound. They must know what they believe and why they believe it, and they must be able to declare and defend the orthodox doctrines of the church. Which then leads to the final thing they must be able to do. And that is, they must have the ability to teach. That's the one qualification that separates elders from deacons. They absolutely must have the ability to teach the Word of God. They must be able to know the Word of God well enough to be able to proclaim the truth authoritatively. They must be able to take the text and exposit to the body what God is saying. They must be able to teach authoritatively and accurately, but also lovingly. Now, why then is all this so important that we would go through all of that on a Sunday morning? The reason why this is important is what's at stake. You see, what's at stake in the local church, if we don't get it right, what's at stake in the local church is the gospel itself. What's at stake is the gospel itself. This is why so many churches today are, are there to entertain people. This is why so many churches are there to make people feel better about themselves. This is why so many churches are there to just kind of get people to feel a little bit better about themselves so they'll come back that hopefully maybe by osmosis they might figure out who Jesus is. What's at stake is the gospel. There is one thing in the world that can save anyone, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. Right? A, a hotshot, fast-talking, compelling pastor cannot save you. Church programs don't have the power to save. VBS is wonderful, but kids are not going to get saved because simply we have the best VBS in town. What's going to save people is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period, end of story. And we have to get the gospel right, and we have to proclaim the gospel clearly. That's why pastors and elders must be mature, and that's why they must be theologically trained, and they must be able to come back to the gospel over and over and over again. You want to know, you want to do a secret experiment and to see how far off the church is in America? Ask the next 10 Christians you meet, hey, 
what's the gospel? And let them try to explain it to you. And you'll just be disheartened. The gospel is the truth that God created all things in the world. He's holy, righteous, and just, and He created you for a relationship with Him. But man fell into sin, and because of that, you yourself fell into sin by birthright, but also willingly. And because you fell into sin, your sin has separated you from the life-giving relationship that you were created for. So there's a hole in your heart that will never, ever get filled by anything in the world. But you will seek to make idols and you will do whatever you have to do to fill it. You'll pursue sin willingly because it's what you want to do. And there's nothing you can do to overcome the stain of your own sin. Nothing. You can't be good enough, smart enough, loving enough. And because of that, then you, by default, are under the just wrath and the condemnation of God. God will punish sin. And that's what we all have deserved because of our sin. And again, we are helpless and hopeless because we can't do anything about it, even if we wanted to. But then, the good news that God Himself came into the world, Jesus Christ came into the world to do for us all the things that we can't do for ourselves. He lived the perfect life on our behalf so that we can have a righteousness that is not our own, a righteousness that we need to be able to have a relationship with God. And then more than that, He went to the cross and bore in His body the sins that we have that separate us from God, the sins, past, present, and future, that, that keep us from God. And on the cross, He died in our place, suffering Himself the wrath that we rightly deserve. And by faith in that act, our sins are imputed to Christ, credited to Him, and His righteousness is credited to us. And then three days later, He rose again, proving that He is what He claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that He can do what He promised to do, that is to rescue us from our sin and the wrath of God. And that we are right by God, by faith in Christ and Christ alone. That is the gospel. That is what is at stake. And if we're not proclaiming that over and over and over again, we are failing all of our friends and our family. If we're telling them to come to Jesus so they feel better and not have needed depression, we are missing the mark. Jesus certainly can help with depression. Don't get me wrong here. But that's not the gospel. So the gospel is at stake. And the second thing is at stake is a healthy church. If we're not teaching the truth. We're not teaching the orthodox doctrines of the church. We run the risk of having a church that becomes anemic and falter and fall down. In fact, if you remember, we talked about, again, I don't want to belabor this point, but I just want to just, it's, it's a piece of evidence I want to share with you. One of the things we talked about is, is when churches compromise on what the text actually says about gender roles in the church, it opens the door for other things. I read an article um, just like Tuesday of a, a Baptist church in Indiana that just ordained a, um, a transgender woman, which means he's a man who is transgendered into a woman. They ordained him to be a pastor of a church. Then I read the article about the background of how they got there. Well, in 1999, they left the Southern Baptist Convention because the Southern Baptist Convention at that time was taking a stand that the Bible says only men are ordained for church, uh, ordained to be uh, pastors. And so they said, we're leaving the church, we're leaving the Southern Baptist Convention. And here we are now, 22 years later, that slow fade has drifted from one thing to the next. This is why we must stand on the orthodox truths that we find in the scriptures about how we worship, about who we are in Christ, about the gospel, about how we're to conduct ministry, how we do things in the church. We do this because we must focus on having a healthy church. And this is why it's so important that the church is led by qualified biblical leaders. And in that then, it is our mission here at First Baptist Church is to find and raise up other men who can do this? Because we need more. The world needs more pastors and elders. Also, the world needs more um, teachers who teach the children the gospel. The world needs more evangelists. The world needs more workers of the harvest to go out into the world and storm the gates of hell. But it all comes back down to 
how we live and operate as a local church. The hope of the world is the gospel. And the light of that gospel as a local church, as Paul said, the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The church is the, the instrument that de defends and declares the truth for the world around us. Brothers and sisters, that is who you are. You are part of that church. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.